The Interchange is brought to you by Smarter Grid Solutions. Smarter Grid Solutions is a leading enterprise energy management software company operating internationally from bases in the U.S. and U.K. Smarter Grid Solutions' DERMS products are used by distribution utilities, energy service companies, and microgrid operators to manage grid capacity and resilience and to seamlessly integrate energy assets into the market and the grid. To find out more about how Smarter Grid Solutions software can integrate renewable and distributed energy into the grid and give you real control over and, of course, value from your clean energy assets, visit the link in the show notes. A lot of these decisions will be made in similar ways as they were in the past, and a lot of the the data analysis that we do based on sensor data will be done in similar ways as in the past. But the difference is that we have now many more sensors to analyze or many more decisions to make, and so machine learning can simply help scale what we're already doing. How will advanced computers and math help us tackle climate change? This week, we're rebroadcasting a 2020 interview with expert Priya Donti about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and their many possible roles in decarbonizing the economy. That's right here on The Interchange. From optimizing buildings to modeling new industrial processes to optimizing transportation to better managing the grid, AI and machine learning are core to any technology strategy for addressing climate change. So how exactly are they going to be implemented and what problems can they solve? With us to answer those questions is Priya Donti, a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon University. Her work is focused on machine learning, grid systems and climate change. And she's also the co-chair of Climate Change AI, a group of academics and practitioners looking at machine learning and AI as a decarbonization tool. So in other words, she's exactly the person to be having this conversation with. Priya, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So you got your start studying and modeling next generation electric grids, and then AI came into the picture. How did that get wrapped up into your expertise and focus? Yeah, so um, I got interested in climate change relatively early on due to a um, sustainability class that was being taught at my high school. And then in college, I got interested in computer science. And I was looking for ways to, to bring these two things together and stumbled upon a paper called Putting the Smarts into the Smart Grid by a number of uh, researchers at the University of Southampton. And they were basically describing ways that machine learning, artificial intelligence and analytics could help us better understand, for example, how renewables are coming onto the grid. And I got very excited about that and, and got into that area. So let's talk about how it is impacting your work today. Before we get deeper into that, I I think it's important to define the terms we're using because in my intro, I am using AI and machine learning interchangeably. Um, Can I do that? (laughs) And how do we define each one when when we're using those terms? Yeah. So the exact lines between artificial intelligence and machine learning aren't strictly defined. But broadly speaking, artificial intelligence is the use of computational techniques to try to replicate many things that that humans would do. Um, One particular branch of that artificial general intelligence, AGI, tries to basically replicate human intelligence using computational techniques. 
Um, machine learning specifically can be viewed as a branch of artificial intelligence, depending on who you talk to. Um, but it describes a group of technologies that help automatically extract patterns from data and usually large amounts of data. So what we're talking about today was outlined in an academic paper that you recently wrote with a bunch of co-authors called Tackling Climate Change with Machine Learning. And a lot of your co-authors are from all around the world, um, from the University of Montreal to University of Pennsylvania to Harvard to Cornell, uh, and then also from Microsoft and Google and DeepMind. So a really broad range of folks focused on this issue. And a few weeks back, Shale flags this for me, and he says, oh, check out this paper. You got to read this. This is really fascinating stuff. So Shale, what attracted you to this paper? And why do you think it's important to be having this conversation? Well, I think there's a number of reasons that this conversation is important, and I'm really excited to have it. What really attracted me to the paper specifically is just, you know, in the world in which I inhabit, which is talking to a million companies and startups, many of whom are trying to combat climate change in one way or another, it's it's so common to have a company say, well, we use AI to do X, right? But what I hadn't seen before, um, and what this paper attempts to do, is outline all of, or at least many of the different ways in which AI and machine learning can be applied to combating climate change. And what you kind of see at the outset is like it's a very long paper. And that's uh, for good reason, because there are maybe innumerable ways. I mean, I think I was trying to count the number that were outlined in the report, and it's in the hundreds for sure. Um, so it's just a really good reference guide to look if you're interested in combating climate change in the industrial sector here's a bunch of ways that ai and machine learning could be applied so i'm excited to talk about some of those specifically but before we do that priya i'm interested to hear from you i mean one of the things that you and your colleagues who've been creating this climate change ai initiative um, are doing, I think, is building this hub where folks who are practitioners in the machine learning community who are interested in climate change as a problem to solve can gather. And so given that you're amassing this community, I, I guess I'm curious what you're learning about the people within it. Who are they? What are they interested in? How are they thinking about applying their skill set to climate change? I think it's a it's an interesting simultaneous track to another one that we've been talking about recently, which is this resurgence and in interest amongst investors and venture capitalists in in what's now being called climate tech. So I'm wondering if the same thing is happening on the um, technologist side. Yeah. So the reason, one of the reasons that we put together the climate change AI initiative is because there was this kind of real burgeoning interest within the machine learning community of how exactly do we apply our skills to climate change? There were a lot of people who, you know, are working on various machine learning techniques and we're, we're kind of looking for a way in. And so there is a broad portion of this community that basically has been working fundamentally on machine learning techniques and is coming into climate change um, more newly. There's also a subset of the community which has been working at this intersection for a little while now. Um, so... For instance, there are other initiatives like um, climate informatics or computational sustainability that 
have brought together people working on, for example, in the case of climate informatics, machine learning and climate science, or in the case of computational, the Computational Sustainability Network, machine learning and applications in service of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So there have been some pockets of the community that have been working on different aspects of the problem. And what we wanted to do is bring together kind of one movement to say, hey, look, if you're working on any aspect of the climate change problem, so climate change mitigation, adaptation, um, or kind of broader tools that service the implementation of mitigation and adaptation techniques, then we want this to be a place that you can come, you can meet other people um, and sort of both get more machine learning people to be working on your projects and also um, bring in people from the domain who are actually working on the ground on these problems to lend their expertise. Yeah, and I want to come back to that latter point about sort of trying to build these bridges between the machine learning community, um, researchers, academics, and so on, and then practitioners within the spaces to which these will be applied. But I guess before we do that, one thing I thought would be interesting is, you know, as I mentioned before, the paper that you all produced highlights dozens and dozens and dozens of different applications. Um, so we, we don't, there's no way we have time to run through all of them. But I, I picked out a few that I think are particularly interesting and that hopefully showcase um, some variety of different machine learning techniques, because I think this is one thing that those of us who are not uh, machine learning practitioners often forget is that it's not one thing, right? Um, so, you know, let's talk through a few of them individually. And I'm interested in exploring with you a little bit about, you know, how you think machine learning can be applied and what techniques can be used and, and where we think there's the biggest leverage. Um, and I thought maybe what we would do is start with kind of a couple of examples that are probably relatively familiar to most of our listeners. So say the in the electricity sector as an example, and then we can expand outward into things that are a little further afield. Um, but starting with electricity, one of the areas that you highlight early in the paper is using machine learning to do better supply and demand forecasting for electricity. So can you talk a little bit through what, where the, what the problem is there, I guess, and then specifically how one might apply machine learning to do it better? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the general idea behind supply and demand forecasting is that at any given time on an electricity grid, we have to balance between the amount of power that's being put into the grid and the amount of power that's coming out, that's being consumed. And in some ways, this can be viewed as a weighing scale where you have supply on one side and demand on the other side, and the demand is changing and the supply is changing, and yet somehow you have to maintain a balance between these two things. And this concept is of importance in a couple of different scenarios. One is if you're an electricity system operator actually actively trying to balance and maintain this system. Um, and then another um, set of in individuals or organizations who may be interested in this is those who are doing 24-7 procurements, which I know is a, a topic on a previous episode of this podcast, but generally trying to ensure that the electricity that's being purchased is exactly matching the timing of the electricity that's being used. And an electricity system operator in particular, when managing this kind of system, has to make decisions at multiple timescales. For instance, if I decide that I need to um, increase or decrease the amount of electricity coming from a natural gas plant because of how much solar power I think I'm going to have going forward, there's some 
physical response time, the natural gas plant can only turn on or turn off so quickly. And this leaves electricity system operators making decisions at multiple timescales. So how can we help? Well, we can help create forecasts of solar and wind power, for example, or of demand, things that we don't know completely ahead of time but can get some handle on. We can try to create forecasts of these quantities that are more accurate. We can try to create forecasts of these quantities at different horizons, so forecasts for an hour out, two hours out, a few a day out or a few days out to help electricity system operators who are making these kinds of decisions about how to balance the grid at different times. Um, and then we can also quantify the uncertainty of these forecasts. How sure are we that these forecasts are correct? And so machine learning can can plug in specifically to that problem. In particular, a lot of techniques have used a combination of historical data or outputs of new numerical, we numerical weather prediction models, so physical models that are trying to get a handle on, for example, solar radiation, um, or even images and videos. There are some projects that look at uh, cameras that are pointed upwards next to a solar panel to try to get a handle on how clouds are passing by the solar panel. So there are a number of machine learning techniques that can take in these different heterogeneous sources of data, try to analyze them to understand the patterns in this data, and then use that pattern analysis to basically make forecasts about the future. I just want to dig in on something that you mentioned a couple of times, because I think it's a good tangible example here, which I actually was not super familiar with until somewhat recently, which is, so you and I were actually introduced by Jack Kelly, who used to work with DeepMind and is now um, running an organization called Open Climate Fix, which is, among other things, trying to do better solar generation or solar irradiation forecasting using AI. And so one of the things that, that I think isn't super obvious on the outside is that it's actually very difficult. So, you know, we, we've spent a lot of time trying to do better forecasting of, for example, wind production. And it, it seems to me from having spent time with a bunch of startups in this space as well, there's still some improvement to be done in terms of how much production will you get out of wind farm X, you know, in an hour tomorrow, next month and so on. But it's even harder with solar because basically with solar, you're not predicting um, weather in the sense of wind speeds, you're predicting cloud cover, which is very geographically specific and hard to predict, something we historically have not had to predict at that level of detail. And so there's a whole bunch of effort around, you know, can we use AI and can we use the techniques that you're specifically describing to actually come up with an accurate, hyper-local forecast of solar production driven by irradiation, driven by cloud cover, uh, and over what time horizon? Because I think that's another important point, right? It might be one thing to predict how much cloud cover there will be in 20 minutes, and that helps you for your real-time production forecasting, uh, but it's a whole other thing to say how much cloud cover will there be in a week from today. So I wonder, you know, generally speaking, where you think the limitations lie with our ability to use these new techniques to improve forecasts? Where are we going to hit a ceiling? Yeah, so I think that a lot of current machine learning techniques rely simply on data in the natural sense. So can we look at past data? Can we look at, again, images or videos? And yet we actually have a lot of knowledge of how weather works. We have physics that can describe this. And so I think that in order to get 
to the next level in order to actually be able to provide these granular forecasts at, at different timescales that we will need to somehow integrate our physical knowledge with the power of machine learning to assess large amounts of data. And um, there is some work that is already al going along those lines, for instance, work that's trying to create um, layers in neural networks, uh, which I can describe what that means, but basically layers in neural networks that capture uh, physics, uh, be it weather physics or the physics of the power grid, in order to then be able to leverage data, but then also have an inherent sense of the physical knowledge we already have. All right. I can't help it. Describe what layers of neural networks are. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll uh, step back for a second and say um, there's this area of machine learning called deep learning. And um, deep learning describes a really popular area of machine learning at the moment that's really loosely inspired by the neural networks in our brain. And they turn out to be a really good way to process large amounts of data. And how a, an artificial neural network works. An artificial neural network is the kind of model that we use in machine learning. An artificial neural network is composed of a series of layers. And what we do is we put data into the neural network, into one layer. This layer then outputs some information, which is then passed as input to the next layer. And this process happens over and over again. Basically, these layers are stacked on top of one another. And then at the end, we get some kind of output and we use that output in some way. We assess that output in some way in order to help this neural network then learn what the relationship between its inputs and its outputs are. Um, and so a layer actually just represents one component of this neural network and traditionally represents some function from inputs to outputs. So a really, uh, you could think about a straight line, a neural network layer could simply represent a straight line. And so you put in some input and you'd get some translation of that input along a straight line. Uh, but we can also use that layer to represent things like power system physics. And that's what that's a topic that some new research is looking at at the moment. I have a broad question because we're, we're going to spend some time going through a lot of different applications. So as we're doing that, and you're describing, you know, how neural networks work. I I'm wondering if we can take a step back and ask, is there something that, that, that these technologies, these applications can do so materially different that we can't do today? So if we think about supply-demand forecasting or grid management, we have the computational abilities and the software to be able to do some pretty sophisticated things today. So as we're talking about the next generation of technology that it's going to allow us to do it you know faster and smarter and in a more sophisticated way is it a gigantic leap from what we have today because i think that's important for informing how we're thinking through the, the how sectors could change yeah i think in a lot of ways machine learning techniques are not as scary i think as a lot of um people may think one way to conceptualize machine learning techniques is the kind of scaling of human intuition. So for example, if we have a large set of images that we're trying to understand or that we're trying to classify, so maybe we're trying to understand whether a particular image has a dog or a cat in it, this is something that a human can do, right? I can take a look at a particular image and, and tell you, hopefully, whether something is a dog or a cat. Um, but the issue comes when now we have, you know, lots and lots of images coming in. So in, this, in the power sector, we have more and more sensors being installed 
on the power system that are bringing in these really, really large streams of data. And we have much more management to do on the power system now that we have solar, wind, and other variable renewable electricity sources. We have to, as these um, as the electricity production from these sources varies on a moment-to-moment basis, we have to make decisions more and more quickly. And a lot of these decisions will be made in similar ways as they were in the past. And a lot of the, the data analysis that we do based on sensor data will be done in similar ways as in the past. But the difference is that we have now many more sensors to analyze or many more decisions to make. And so machine learning can simply help scale what we're already doing. Yeah, I think I think you're actually asking... An- important question, Stephen, which is the way that I think about it, and Priya, you could tell me if this comports with how you think about it as well, is basically there are some tasks which techniques like machine learning will allow us to do better or at larger scale or with more complexity. So I would put supply-demand forecasting of electricity within that category, which is we obviously already do it today. We have a grid that functions, and it has a variety of resources, and some of those resources are variable already today and non-dispatchable, and we deal, right? Um, and there's already probably some machine learning being applied to it, but you know, I'm sure we could We've been operating an electricity network for a long time, but uh, what machine learning is going to allow us to do is one, get more precise and better. So we will be able to forecast more accurately, which will reduce losses uh, and overgeneration and just make the whole system operate more efficiently. And two, allow us to adapt to the increasing complexity of the network itself, which is being driven by the increasing penetration of renewables and the addition of things like battery storage and behind the meter resources. So all of that is to say, in the case of electricity supply demand forecasting, it feels to me like machine learning is a tool you you have in your toolkit to do it better in a more challenging future. But there are other applications where there are problems you you simply would have a very hard time solving, but for these modern techniques like machine learning. So really, really complex system optimization challenges, for example, for which the computational load alone would have been daunting 10 years ago, let alone actually deriving real insights from it. So I guess for, first for you, Priya, d- does that feel like the right heuristic to you? And if so, then I think we should talk about one of these really complex system optimization challenges applied to climate change, because then we can contrast it against electricity. Yeah, that seems about right. <laughs> about right is pretty much um, the best I can yeah. hope for <laughs> when it comes to talking about <laughs> AI and machine learning. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And so, as you said, there are kind of places where we need more precision. There are places where we need uh, increasing complexity. And then I would add there are places where we need additional data or insight that may not already exist. So, for example, if we want to understand the existing building stock in a particular area. So how many buildings are there? What is the energy efficiency of these buildings? And various other quantities of interest to policymaking. Sometimes we actually don't have access to that data. And so machine learning can additionally help us, I guess, can help us get some relevant data in places where we don't have more intensive or precise methods of collecting it. So that's another kind of application that I would pose. 
Right. And that's a good example of one that could utilize, potentially could utilize a variety of different techniques. So you might say, okay, well, first let's figure out what the building stock looks like. And so you might use, for example, satellite data. And then that's your dog cat classification example, which is you don't want a human necessarily to be looking at every single satellite image and then measuring the size of the building and inferring its characteristics that you want to be done automatically. So using computer vision or remote sensing, um, to just identify things and then to try to infer from a satellite image uh, of a building to what is its what are its energy efficiency characteristics or what type of HVAC is it likely to be using? Like that's a whole other set of challenges that you can apply a set of different techniques to. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm interested to talk a little bit about the transportation and and logistics and supply chain world, which I find really interesting and thought it was one of the most, uh, I don't know, insightful for me because it's less my area of expertise, spaces within the the paper, wherein sort of the, you guys describe a, a variety of different ways in which you could use machine learning to do better routing of freight, to do better supply chain optimization, all of which to basically reduce the greenhouse gas emissions associated with getting stuff from place to place. How do you think about that challenge? Yeah. So as we try to move stuff from place to place, you know, these goods, these, these things move between many different locations. They move on many different modes of transportation. So you might have stuff going on a train for some time or in a boat for some time or in a truck for some time. A lot of these goods are really heterogeneous. And as a result, there's a lot of room to improve the efficiency of how we actually route goods and how we route goods along these supply chains. And um, some of this is actually already being done um, by quote unquote logistics service providers um, who do this, you know, when you think about getting a package from UPS or DHL situations where trucks aren't necessarily full or we have to route trucks to, to residences or to businesses, there's already some innovation going on in terms of how do we do this more efficiently um, and how do we pack shipments into a truck more efficiently, for example. Um, but alignment of incentives really matters. So in the paper we describe, the, the author of that, uh, the industry section, Anna Waldman-Brown, describes an example that I really love, which is that um, in 2006, uh, two Scottish seafood firms flew a ton of shrimp, or meant many tons of shrimp, um, from Scotland to China, and then to Thailand for peeling, and then back to Scotland to be sold, because it saved on labor costs. And so in these scenarios, there are these very complicated shipments going on, these complicated movement of goods, and in thus far, they've been driven very much by costs. Of course, in our case, we would really like these kinds of optimizations to be driven by emissions. So setting that background, that sort of incentives matter, policy matters, and that will always drive how these machine le learning techniques are used here. Um, there are a number of ways that machine learning can be applied to this particular problem of optimizing supply chains. So one example is um, a, a similar example to supply and demand forecasting, which we just talked about, but we can also forecast disruptions. Maybe if a particular mode of transportation is going to be delayed or it's going to be disrupted for some reason, and that would hamper how goods are exchanged between that particular um, truck or um, and, and the train maybe that the good was supposed to go on next, then that's something we would want to know so that we can re-optimize the supply chain. So forecasting disruptions is one thing. We also 
have a lot of suppliers of different goods um, that might be able to bundle shipments together and might be able to share in some sense um, legs of transportation for their goods. And machine learning can help do something, it can help cluster these suppliers, so try to understand based on their geographic location and the destinations to which they're shipping goods, which suppliers are actually similar. It can try to kind of recognize patterns basically in this large group of suppliers and then match suppliers to each other in order to then help them uh, coordinate to ship goods more efficiently. And I actually recently became aware of, of one company at least that's doing this called Coyote Logistics and they're specifically trying to do shipment matching between different suppliers. I want to propose a theoretical example to you and get your take on this. So let's just talk about Amazon for a second, because obviously Amazon has this enormous supply chain challenge themselves. They they not only work with those other shippers, they have their own delivery and they're delivering basically everything to everybody everywhere. Um, they also have a ton of pressure from employees and activists to be more active on climate change mitigation. We just saw uh, yesterday, from when we're recording now, Jeff Bezos announced this personal gigantic pledge to climate change mitigation. Um, and then meanwhile, Amazon's neighbor, Microsoft, um, who has been a leader in sort of corporate climate change mitigation strategy, sort of famously has imposed an internal cost of carbon uh, for the company. And I wonder if Amazon were to adopt the same strategy, impose an internal cost of carbon, and then try to bake that cost of carbon into its supply chain optimization, which presumably is already using best-in-class machine learning, I have to assume, would that, you know, what would happen, basically, from an actual, like, technical standpoint, if you just try to introduce an, an exogenous factor like uh, dollars per ton of CO2 into what is already incredibly complex system optimization that that somebody like Amazon is doing, would that work? Would that be a blanket solution? In some sense, that could help a lot. Um, the way a lot of, not all, but a lot of machine learning algorithms work is that there's some kind of objective that is trying to be optimized, and then you optimize that subject to you know all the real world constraints that you see, um, how fast various uh, modes of transportation move, for example, or where they're located. and from a technical perspective, putting a broad brush here, it's as easy as changing out the objective function. There are a lot of details I'm glossing over when I say that. Um, but in some sense, yes, pricing in uh, carbon dioxide would help a lot. That said, there's always the question, of course, of who is pricing in carbon dioxide. So if Amazon prices in carbon dioxide internally for some of the operations over which it has complete control, it also has a it also has a choice as to, well, I'm, let's say, paying somebody else to do some particular thing, to ship some particular good. Am I also pricing in the carbon associated with that operation? Or am I leading, leaving the onus of that on the person I, I offload this job to? Um, and so there's, I think there are a lot of, dev, there's a you know devil in the details here, but um, at, at some level, yes, I think pricing in um, carbon dioxide considerations could, could really help I guess, uh, target machine learning techniques um, in a way that actually does reduce emissions rather than just costs. 
We're going to take a quick break to talk about Smarter Grid Solutions, the sponsor of The Interchange. Smarter Grid Solutions is a leading enterprise energy management software company that specializes in the management of distributed energy resources. Operating from New York and Glasgow, its Durham solutions are used by every distribution utility in the UK and several utilities and energy companies in the US. Cirrus Flex, Smarter Grid Solutions virtual power plant product, optimizes the operating schedules of distributed resources, maximizing returns from energy markets and grid flexibility services. Cirrus Flex brings together all these distributed energy assets and fleets to the grid and the market, delivering on-site and system value to asset owners, operators, aggregators, and traders. To learn more about Smarter Grid Solutions and the value-maximizing VPP solutions offered by Cirrus Flex, visit the link in the show notes. Okay, so let's talk about a couple more examples of uses of machine learning that you all identified in the study, starting with the world of agriculture and farms and forests. Um, One of the areas that you identified that I think is interesting and, and we haven't spent as much time probably on in this podcast as we should have is precision agriculture. You talk a little bit about what that is and how ML can be applied to it to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Absolutely. And one thing I'll say is I'm really excited that um, we were able to propose some applications of machine learning to agriculture because agriculture is around 15% of, of global emissions. And a lot of agriculture is done through this culture of, of monoculture. So can we treat the land really uniformly? Can we grow one type of crop in a way that allows us to apply one kind of treatment to the land? And there are a lot of problems with that. I mean, first of all, we often tend to chop down trees in order to make uniform farmland um, that releases carbon dioxide. We then till the topsoil, um, which exposes the topsoil to air, um, and that releases the CO2 you know, in soil aggregates. It disrupts organisms in soil, etc. cetera. Um, and then we strip nutrients from the land as a result, and that means we have to add in nitrogen-based fertilizers, which take a lot of greenhouse gases to produce. So instead of this kind of uniformity assumption, there are some questions about, well, can we still work at scale, but do this in a more in a way that values heterogeneity? Can we plant more types of crops on the same land? Can we adapt to what the land needs? And as a result, reduce the amount of fertilizer we're using, reduce the amount of tilling, reduce all of these things that contribute to, to emissions. So how do you do this? How do you kind of manage large amounts of land with different kinds of crops that need different kinds of treatments at scale? And this is where robotic tools come in and can really help. So in particular, there are a couple of tools under development, um, one called RIPA at the University of Sydney, another one called Thorvald by Saga Robotics, Eco Robotics FarmBot, a couple of others that essentially some of these are equipped with hyperspectral cameras that allow them to basically sense around them. What am I seeing? Am I seeing a plant? Um, What kind of plant am I seeing? Is this plant damaged? Um, And kind of this idea of being able to take these camera images and hyperspectral camera images and translate them into insights about what you're seeing is an application of computer vision. So machine learning that's used to analyze images and and videos. Um, And then we want these robotic these robots to be able to, based on what they see, potentially perform, you know, mechanical weeding or targeted pesticide application or or things like that 
individually to different plants by kind of navigating through a field without uh, without damaging any of these crops. And this is where we would use traditional techniques from from control theory, maybe to control how the robot moves through the field, but also techniques from machine learning, particularly from the area of reinforcement learning, can come into play here too. So both in terms of being able to see what's happening in the land and then being able to control robots that then allow us to scalably farm the land, machine learning can can plug in. All right, you open the door slightly. Tell us what reinforcement learning is. <laughs> so reinforcement learning is a kind of machine learning that tries to optimize how some kind of agent, quote unquote, should act in an environment in order to maximize some kind of reward. And so this is a really broad notion, right? It can apply to something like a robot going through a maze or navigating through a field. It can also refer to something where a battery, for example, is being charged or discharged on an electric grid. We can think of the battery as an agent that's trying to make decisions about whether it should charge or discharge and the environment it's acting in as being the electric grid. So reinforcement learning just refers to this this broad, a broad set of techniques that's addressing this particular problem of an agent uh, navigating in an environment. So, so far we've talked about uh, a bunch of examples in the areas that sort of the way that we normally frame the climate change problem, I think when we're talking about it on this podcast is let's define the sectors wherein we emit um, greenhouse gases and then figure out what the solutions are in each. So we've talked about buildings, we've talked about electricity, we've talked about agriculture. Now, one of the things that I like that you and your colleagues did in the papers, you go beyond that as well, right? It's not just talking about the sectors where we emit. It's also talking about using machine learning for climate prediction and societal impacts and potentially geoengineering um, and stuff like individual action. Like how can you actually galvanize individuals who want to change their behavior to mitigate their impact on climate change? Uh, how can you give them the tools and capabilities and, and data and knowledge to do that, which is an area that I've recently been spending a bunch of time in and finding really interesting because I, I think there's there's some kind of a turning point where historically it was sort of a truism that you just couldn't rely on people to change their individual behavior because of climate change. And I think particularly generationally, there's some sort of a shift going on there, how big it is and how sustainable it is. I don't know, but I'm interested to have you walk us through a bit about how um, you think ML can be applied to enabling individuals to take action to reduce their own impacts on greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, so I think I should start by saying I do think addressing climate change will, of course, take large scale change by industries, corporations, governments, etc. But as you mentioned, I mean, a lot of us are, of course, interested in how we as individuals in our day to day lives can also contribute to this. And one thing that can be really difficult is just getting relevant data on the activities that I'm doing on a day to day basis. When I go to the grocery store and I buy an apple, I don't necessarily have a ton of insight into where that apple came from. Where was it grown? How was it grown? How was it transported to me? Um, how many apples were wasted or not picked um, in, in, and, and as a result don't appear in front of me in the grocery store at all? And so there's something that's some things that can come down to really simple calculators. So for instance, if I want to understand the emissions from a particular flight, there are calculators for that. But there's some things like this Apple example that I gave that are a lot more complicated. And so machine learning, another area called data mining, so trying to extract data and insights from many, many different sources, could potentially be used to, for example, understand where it's not already documented, you know, given that we have maybe purchase agreements between 
uh, a grocery store and wherever they they source their produce from, or we have other agreements between um, a grocery store and a a, uh, transportation provider, maybe we can extract information from these various agreements and from other sources of data, um, put them together and package them in a way that allows us to then present to a consumer, oh, hey, here are the emissions associated with that particular apple. And one thing that could help a lot with is often there are a lot of conversations about, oh, well, if I do this particular thing or I do that particular thing, it has some effect on my emissions. But there often isn't a way to say, hey, look, actually, what is the most impactful thing I could be doing or what is the activity that I'm that I'm doing that has the most impact on on emissions? And so I think bringing together these various sources of data in an automated way could really help um, unveil some of these insights at an individual level. I, I totally agree. I, I, listeners of this podcast will know that I've been for a little while now sort of obsessed with the idea of carbon transparency and exposing the embedded emissions in our everyday activities, in our purchases, our decisions about shipping, all this kind of stuff. And I I do think that at some point we're going to start to see a sort of nutritional label type of thing, or it's either a nutritional label type of thing, or at the sort of lowest level, it's like an organic label type of thing for certain goods. Um, that tells you a little bit, just provides you more information than what you have right now, which is zero around the decisions that we are making in our daily lives and the impact that they have on climate change. So I think that's a really exciting area to to dig into and one that's pretty greenfield because we really just don't have much of it at all right now. Um, stepping back, I guess, how do you think about categorizing all these different applications, the different techniques that you can use from the world of machine learning. How do you describe this when you're trying to get into the broad story of how machine learning and AI can be applied to climate change mitigation? Is there a a way to describe it that doesn't require you to go through individual applications and then describe every individual technique within each application? Yeah, so there are a couple of cross-cutting themes that we identify that classify a lot of the applications that we're talking about here. So in particular, one potentially obvious one for machine learning in this area is forecasting. There are a lot of applications, including solar power and demand, but also things like forecasting extreme events or forecasting prices in a carbon market that um, kind of fall in in this umbrella. Another one is remote sensing. So trying to understand um, emissions or infrastructure data or deforestation from satellite imagery. System optimization is is another big one. Uh, Another one that came up earlier is trying to incorporate physical knowledge somehow into machine learning models. So this idea of hybrid physical models, um, which comes up a lot when we talk about approximating really time-intensive simulations like climate models or power system optimization. and then one that didn't come up in the examples that we were, or a couple that didn't come up in the examples that we were talking about. So this notion of predictive maintenance, how can we ensure that equipment doesn't break um, in order to then, uh, how, how can we sh- figure out whether equipment is going to break ahead of time in order to then ensure that it doesn't and it operates more efficiently? Um, how can we accelerate the discovery how can we accelerate scientific discovery of either new green technologies or of alternatives to existing dirty technologies like cement? So there are a lot of these kind of broad themes that represent sort of kinds of ways that machine learning can be used in in a variety of areas. And I think 
can provide some direction in particular for the machine learning field because techniques that contribute to these cross-cutting themes as a result can precipitate a lot of benefits for a lot of different applications throughout the paper. Shale, I want to turn this around to you really briefly and, and ask if this makes you feel any differently about your investment thesis or where you would consider putting money as a venture capitalist. On a, a couple of times on this show, we've revisited this concept of climate tech and how people with money or who are making decisions are treating the best opportunities. So this adds a whole new layer of opportunity and ways to think about climate solutions. Does it change your perspective at all? Well, I think it it, it opens it up some, actually, in ways that are really exciting. And I think one of, the, one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation is I think that this list is climate tech, right? Every single application of machine learning and AI identified in these papers and all the work that's being done in the climate change AI community is exactly what we mean when we say climate tech. Now, to be clear, it's not the entirety of climate tech, right? But even just within this one discipline of AI and machine learning, the fact that there are just so many different applications that can play some role in mitigating climate change and that there's a way to categorize all of them and think through their applications within market contexts and with who the players and customers are going to be, I think is really exciting. So to me, it doesn't change our thesis. And in fact, our a bunch of our portfolio companies are doing exactly the things that are outlined in in some of these cases, like we have portfolio companies that are using AI to do better load forecasting with electricity, portfolio companies that are using computer vision and remote sensing techniques to do um, predictive maintenance on grid infrastructure, portfolio companies that are doing this sort of supply demand optimization to try to figure out how better to operate dispatchable resources on the grid like this stuff some of this stuff is happening um but the the breadth of the opportunity i think is what's really exciting to me that i was not fully i hadn't fully comprehended before getting hooked into priya's world so priya you've got this really highly engaged community of of ai and machine learning practitioners and I think what's interesting, our, our audience for this podcast, and certainly um, a lot of the folks that I interact with day to day, they are operators within many of these markets that we're talking about. How do you think we can best bridge that divide to the extent that it exists between the, the practitioners and the academics and researchers and those who are developing sort of cutting edge techniques that can then be applied within these sectors? So I'm far from having all of the answers here, but some initial thoughts are, um, I think there could be a lot more structures to encourage better exchange between the machine learning community and existing on the ground practitioners. For instance, I would love to see a lot of machine learning experts who are working at electricity system operators. And there are a lot of practical challenges here. I mean, machine learning experts are going to come in and have to grapple with, for example, existing legacy systems. And, you know, there's a lot of difficulty in changing somehow how some of these operations are done. There are issues of funding and headcount. If you are, for example, looking at a machine learning expert going into a, a city government. Um, so there are a lot of challenges there. But I think fundamentally, there have to be these structures to encourage cross-pollination if we're going to actually get these ideas um, off the ground. Um, 
And in addition, uh, having a, of course, healthy startup ecosystem, which you know a lot about, um, and providing a pipeline from research to large-scale implementation. So providing people who are doing research, for example, in machine learning, access to investors or mentorship and entrepreneurship, et cetera, because sometimes the people who have the expertise to research a technology aren't necessarily the ones who have the expertise ahead of time to scale that and, and monetize that and really uh, bring it bring it into action. So, and then finally, I think their underlying has to be some process to vet applications or, or solutions that we might be proposing, because on the one hand, we want to make sure that, you know, limited government dollars aren't necessarily going towards applications that aren't meaningful. And on the other hand, I think that there are a lot of folks who aren't familiar with ML and what is reliable and where it can have an impact. And so having some kind of system to say, hey, look, this application is actually really valuable. You as an investor should be comfortable with it could be very valuable. Um, our climate change AI initiative is, is really actively trying to think through these questions um, and to provide resources to sort of bridge some of these gaps. And so we would definitely encourage anybody who has ideas that uh, and would like to brainstorm with us about this to reach out. So Priya, is AI going to save the world? You, you're careful in this paper to explain the potential and the limits. So how do we think about it in terms of the solution set? Yeah, so AI is not going to be the thing that solves climate change by any means. Climate change is a really multifaceted issue. Um, there are a lot of different sectors that need to reduce emissions or adapt to the effects of climate change. And there are a lot of different tools that we will need in order to do this, right? So machine learning is one of them, but we can think about traditional technological tools like optimization. Um, we can think about uh, the social sciences and tools from policy analysis that try to understand how can we make, how do we make decisions under uncertainty? So I think the way to conceptualize machine learning here is that for certain kinds of problems where we have large amounts of data or we have to do large scale system optimization or we're trying to gather insights from non-traditional data streams. So again, to, to come back to this example, to get information about buildings from satellite imagery. In settings like these, machine learning can provide value in terms of either accelerating existing applications or even enabling some new ones. But it will have to be used in combination with a huge variety of other techniques and a huge other a variety of other courses of action um, in order to be impactful. And so one call I guess I would put out to listeners here is that, you know, we wrote this paper coming from the machine learning community to say, how can the techniques in our community help? And I think it would be really fantastic if every other field or many other fields did the same exercise and said, how are our techniques best suited to tackle this problem? Because when it comes down to it, we're going to need everybody to, to tackle this problem at sufficient speed. Priya Donti is a PhD student in computer science and public policy at Carnegie Mellon University. She's also the co-chair of Climate Change AI, and she joined us from Pittsburgh. Priya, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And that is it for the show. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Audio. Daniel Waldorf is our senior producer. I am the executive producer, Stephen Lacey. Shale Khan is our normal host, and he will be back next week. What did you think of the conversation? Tweet at us at Interchange Show. Twitter is a really good place to interact with us. And please give us a rating, share it with a friend. Helps other people learn about the show. Talk to you next week. Thanks for being here.